right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Sala here. Today's guest is our friend Shane Ryan. He has got a new book out, which I'm sure you have heard about. It is called The Cup They Couldn't Lose. Uh, I know he's doing a lot of interviews these days. You've probably seen his face pop up in a lot of places. We did our very, very best to make this interview very unique and uh, more about, I, I would consider the book to be more about the history of the Ryder Cup than it is uh, about the 2021 Ryder Cup. We do talk about that in detail on the podcast, but Shane has tremendous appreciation and enthusiasm for the history of the Cup, and he does a great job telling that story in the book and uh, was nice enough to come on and uh, share some of those stories and some of that insight on the podcast with you uh, with all of us here today. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. No Laying Up is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf, the official rangefinder of NLU. Having doubt before a shot is never a good thing, whether you are stepping off distances from a sprinkler head or guessing based on the 150 stick. Getting the exact distance makes a big difference for your confidence and your results. At Precision Pro Golf, you can choose from a family of rangefinders to fit exactly what you need. You can choose from the Lightning Quick NX9 Slope or the R1 Smart Rangefinder with advanced features like wind assist, GPS distances, and MySlope technology. We've all used the NX9 and the R1 Smart Rangefinder here at NLU. Both are a great option for you on the course. And with every Precision Pro product, you get excellent customer service. When you call, a fellow golfer is there to answer and make sure you're taken care of. With industry-leading customer service and lifetime battery replacements, you know Precision Pro always has your back. Head to PrecisionProGolf.com, save $20 with the code NOLAYINGUP. Precision Pro, swing with confidence and hit more greens. Here is Shane Ryan. What did you learn in the process of writing this book about the Ryder Cup that you didn't already know going into it? Yeah, there's an awful lot. I, I think the main thing I didn't know, and which is a big part of the book, is the history uh, of the Ryder Cup. And by that, I mean the pretty recent history. Like, I knew Europe was better. I knew Europe had dominated us for a long time, but I didn't know how it all started. Uh, and I know you actually got to do what I did, which was talk to Tony Jacklin one-on-one, uh, which is one of, you know, you did an amazing job. And I think it's really cool that you got that. So it's archived. He and I met at his club and it was just so cool to, to sit there and talk with him uh, and hear the story about really how the Ryder Cup was on the verge of death in the late seventies and early eighties to the point that, you know, the people in charge at the British PGA and the forerunner to the European tour were kind of going all around the UK desperate to get sponsors and nobody would bite to the point that like 1983 seemed like there might not be a Ryder Cup at all. They finally did get a, a sponsor from Bell's Scotch Whiskey, which is, yeah, funny. And they gave them a lot of money. They, one of those things where like nobody else was bidding and this guy was just like, will you take 300 grand? And they're like, uh, okay. <laughs> at the time, at the time, a lot of money. And uh, so it continued, but at the same time that it continued, there was also this urgency about it, like we need to get competitive fast, okay? Because it had already expanded to Europe. That didn't make a lick of difference in 79 or 81. The U.S. was still killing them as they'd been doing since 1927. And we're entering, you know, a, a period where, you know, TV is becoming more important. You, you need to make a profit eventually. And so Tony Jacklin, you know, who was this very unlikely figure, he didn't like the Ryder Cup at that point, you know, the, the institution that was in charge of it. They didn't really like him but they needed to do something radical. And so they made him captain and he had to change things so fast. And I think the way he did it, the way he kind of overnight made Europe competitive, they almost win in 83 in Florida. 
And then they go on and win in 85. And of course, the rest is history. I think that's one of the great turnaround stories, uh, not just in golf, but in sports. It really amazed me. And I had no idea about any of that coming in. Well, it seems like there are maybe some identity issues in that time period about how competitive they even wanted it to be. And I'm approaching this from the standpoint of the viewpoint, I guess, of Jack Nicholas at the 85, 87, 83 or 87 Ryder Cup. I forget which one it was when the Europeans rolled out their singles lineup. He says something in particular in reaction to that in terms of you can't do that the way that they had ordered it. And I always viewed that as like, I mean, that makes a lot of sense if you're just like having like a member guest. And like, it's almost like I got that kind of vibe about the Ryder Cup. And you make this point too in your in your podcast as well, like the, the miracle that is the survival of this thing for so long. And then all of a sudden it became like, no, no, no holy shit, we are at each other's throats. And, and so it, I don't think there is a one moment when that happens. You've done a great job with 83, 85, 87, and the, the run-up into 91, which is when I think things change, but there's not a snap of the fingers for this thing to totally flip. Yeah, you know, it, and the way you described it is perfect because especially on the American side, when you're winning all the time, it's your way to go over and, oh, yeah, look, all the British people are going to get to see us play. They don't get that that often. And then we we kick their butts and pat them on the back. It's almost like condescending or, or patronizing a little bit. They were very much not ready for things to get that competitive as fast as they did. And, yeah, the story you're alluding to is hilarious where there had always been this agreement that you, you know, you put your best players at the end. That's, that's the deal. That's how you do it. And Tony Jacklin in 83 knew he needed to do something dramatic to have a chance to win. He put all his best players up front. And it's just such a funny thing because you don't see people caught this like nakedly unaware. Jack Nicholas just being like, you can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> Barbara, you're not going to believe what they did. Barbara, come here. Picture him like flapping his hands. Uh, but yeah, so that, and that was a shock. And then, like you said, there's no, one moment but another big one was 85 where there's this genteel kind of thing surrounding the Ryder cup and then they go to europe and the fans are really no different than you might see at a soccer match today or something in england there well can you back can you just real quick back up to a huge thing for me with 83 was and and we'll we can kind of backtrack as well to talk about sevy at a certain point too but the reaction among the team and it's kind of haunting quotes that come from uh, you know, where things I really do think things change was the reaction after 83 when Europe almost beats them in uh, in West Palm and to the, the, the almost immediate reaction in terms of what was said in that locker room afterward. Yeah. And then it is such a great moment. And I'm like fast forwarding through my book here because I would love to give you an exact quote. But there was so 83 Ryder Cup ends. you know, America had never lost in home soil and they came awfully close that day. <clears throat> it ended where, um, you know, Lanny Watkins hit a a great ship against uh, Canizares at the very end to win it. And basically Europe was totally distraught in the locker room after. And there's this moment where Seve came in uh, and he walked in and he sees everybody there, you know, basically looking, you know, downtrodden. They weren't crying or anything, but they were really, really low. Uh, and he, the message he conveyed was essentially, this is not a failure. This is the start of something. You know, what we did here shows what's going on and we're going to win next time. But, you know, tears are streaming down his face as he's giving this speech. He's marching around like a general. And these guys are completely swept up in the energy. There's nobody, you know, who's cynical about it or, or isn't listening to him. They're completely caught up in the charisma of this man and they completely believe him. And you've, you've had some really great things about seeing what makes the European environment unique, particularly at the Solheim Cup. I think you, you saw it. You had some really good stories there. 
which is actually in the book, but there is something about them where it almost feels like in the moments after a devastating loss, they somehow turned it into a victory in their, in their minds. And then it goes forward and, and, you know, what Sevi predicted does come to pass where suddenly it's a new day. Well, and I think it even, it, I feel like that phrase, like we will beat them in 85, we'll beat them in 85, kind of trickles down into, I believe it's Sam Torrance says that in a, in a press conference at some point, because that's used in the intro of your podcast, yeah, The yeah, Ryder yeah. Cup Run. And like, <laughs> that just that just seems to me is where, you know, if we were to point at a certain time of things changing, it's right, right after 83. If I had to pick a moment to where like, all right, we're coming, like there's a certain player here that has is changing the tide. We have a captain that's changing the tide and a player that's changing the tide. And I think you also, and again, for people that aren't familiar with this book, the uh, you know we entered, it, we said it, mentioned in the intro. It's called the Cup They Couldn't Lose. It is not about the 2021 Ryder Cup or the 2020 Ryder Cup, whatever you will. I don't know what it's officially called. It is a a I think I viewed it more of a history book uh, about the Ryder Cup, the modern Ryder Cup, and I found the relationship between Seve, Tony Jacklin the British PGA, the European tour, Lord Darby, all of this crazy (laughs) stuff that goes on. I'm wondering if you can kind of lay out kind of what, you know, Seve first playing on the team in 79, why he wasn't on the team in 81, Mm -hmm. back on the team in 83, how that all happened. I know it's a long story, but if you could uh, give a bit of a history lesson on that. Yeah. And and so the basic, first of all, like the foundational history is that it just used to be the UK. It didn't expand into Europe until 79. And America won all the time. Right? I think UK, the British team, won twice in 50 years. Uh, and so that is sort of the history. And you've got this guy, Tony Jacklin, who I, it's funny now. I don't know how you feel about this, Chris, but I, I think the perception of Jacklin, or he's mostly known for being a Ryder Cup captain at this point. I, I think what people forget is what a pioneer he was as a professional golfer. I mean, there were decades where no British golfer won a major championship and he's the one who broke that uh, at the open. And then he went and won a U.S. open as well. So he was a really big deal. You know, Justin Rose, when he won in Marion, thanked Tony Jacklin, right? So his influence on not just the following generation of of British golfers, but even the ones today, you know, it continues on. He was a really important figure. Uh, he played in Ryder Cups. He had a famous moment in 69 with, with Jack Nicholas, the concession. And so he goes on and, you know, he has a good career. And then he kind of falls off after he loses a British Open, an Open Championship to Lee Trevino. And so he gets left off the team in 1981. And it's a big insult to him because these two guys, Mark James and Ken Brown, in 79 had gone over and really were kind of like disrespecting everything. It's sort of hard to understand exactly what happened now. It doesn't sound that bad, but at the time it was appalling. Right. And it was like this, you know, they, they didn't go for the national anthem and they were kind of jerks about everything. And then the next year comes and they don't put Jacqueline on the team uh, with a captain's pick. And they also don't put Seve on the team because Seve, as part of being on the European tour had started to want appearance fees and he probably deserved them. And they said for a while they gave it to him. And then they said, we're not doing that anymore. And that annoyed him, but it annoyed him even more when they still gave it to American players uh, who came over. And basically Seve's like, you know, look, if I go 50% more people are coming, I'm worth, you know, 50, 50,000 pounds or whatever. So uh, this is the, you know, 81 comes, the U S brings a really, really good team over to Walton Heath. I hope I'm getting that right. Uh, and, and absolutely decimates the, uh, the European team. And so Jacqueline is pissed off. Seve Ballesteros is pissed off. The world in which the two of them are leading the team just two years after that is so far from being a reality at that point. But what happens, again, as I said, is they can't find sponsors. They can't find money. And they are having this big debate uh, inside the British PGA and the European tour of 
do we continue to award the captaincy as a sort of lifetime achievement thing? Or do we pick someone more of the player's vintage, more of their generation, who maybe can relate to them and maybe can turn this thing around? And it was a really, really profound debate. I think Bernard Langer was one of the big ones who pushed for Tony Jacklin. And so when they when they approached Jacklin, it was the summer before the 83 Ryder Cup, or actually that spring. So, you know, now Ryder Cup captains have two years to prepare. They were getting yeah. this guy just months before it was going to happen. And he his inclination was to say no. But instead, he came with a list of demands that he thought they would say no to, like, you know, I want I want to fly over in the Concord. I want to have, you know, beautiful facilities there, a nice locker room that we can be in. I want captain's picks. And the litany just went on and they said yes to everything. And he was like, wow, well, the other thing I want is I want Seve Ballesteros. And this guy, Lord Darby, who you mentioned, he's like this very, like, the way Jacqueline tells it, uh, like a very pompous uh you know, member of the landed gentry of, of Britain, a cousin to Queen Elizabeth, and, you know, somebody who is uh, just really too good. He wouldn't approach Tony Jacklin to ask him if he would accept the captaincy. But once the, once his underlings approached him and he said yes, he had a conversation with them, and Jacklin said, you know, what about Seve? And his quote was, well, he's your problem now. And so then Jacklin's mission then was to meet with Seve, and they did before the Open Championship that year at this hotel, met with him, Listen to him gripe because Sevy was really good at complaining for what sounds like an hour as their breakfast got cold. And then basically told him, like, I need you. I can't do this without you. And also, by the way, it's a good way to sort of increase your profile in the U.S., in the U.K., and all these other things that were kind of important to him. So he said yes. And then you had the ingredients for this Ryder Cup team that would that would totally change history. I love Jacqueline's telling of that tale, too, of after all that, he, Sevy says, Okay, I help you. Yeah, okay, I help you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? I, I, this may be a, a silly question after what you know we just kind of ran through, but who were who would you say are some of the most important people that you spent time with in the process of writing this book? And, and maybe it's a a, a a different category that Tony Jacklin goes in because it seems like that uh, the time spent with him was uh, was pretty special. Yeah, that was great. One of my favorite conversations, it won't surprise you, was with Paul McGinley. Um, you know, and it was funny because I, I talked to him right before the pandemic hit, at the, the day before at the Players' Championship, or the day before it became a big deal. <laughs> it already hit. But, you know, nobody understands, I think, the strategy and the tactics of the Ryder Cup quite like Paul McGinley. And, you know, he just laid it all on the line. He told me everything. He had read, I think, the chapter I wrote about the Ryder Cup in my previous book and kind of saw that I did my research or whatever. And so he, for three hours, we talked and he just told me everything. And, you know, down to the minutia, uh, little things, big things. So that was really cool because I, I think, you know, as good as Jacqueline was, the strategy and the tactics at that time were still pretty rudimentary compared to what they are now. Uh, and so he gave me a schooling on, on, or, the modern, modern Ryder Cup, what things that are happening now, what that's like. I talked with Harry Carrington. I talked with Steve Stricker. It's funny with this book, I did talk to a number of the players, but they weren't the most important because of what you talked about. This is kind of a, a an analysis of the Ryder Cup, a history of the Ryder Cup and telling the story of it. And so the players are, you know, the cogs in the machine. They're really important and they do heroic things, but it's the guys behind the scenes, the guys leading it that are really important. Davis Love is another one. I don't think anybody cares uh, about the Ryder Cup as much as Davis Love. And over time, he has become incredibly smart about it. I would say, you know, and I want to pick your brain as to why why you care about the Ryder Cup as much as you do as someone who also, you know, I think we're maxing out the scale at which we can care about the Ryder Cup. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I must say, after reading your book too, I had the clearest picture 
of what the task force and Davis Love in particular were responsible for in changing of the culture on the American side. And I, I found that uh, to, to that point, some of the things that Davis Love says are, you know, I think he's kind of almost somewhat famous for being a, a cookie cutter personality on the PGA Tour, yet some of his things that I read, I read about or the statements I read from him in the book are as clear cut and committed uh, as, as any statements you get from any other person involved in it. Yeah, he's great. I mean, he was instrumental. You know, Phil Mickelson obviously is in the news from, you know, <laughs> much different reasons now. Phil was, you know, a very public engine of change uh, because he's somebody who always wanted to win Ryder Cups. And what he did at Glen Eagles was really important after Tom Watson's disastrous captaincy. You know, he he kind of attacked Watson, but he also basically said, hey, we had Paul Azinger. We had Azinger in here showing us how to win. What happened? Why didn't we stick with that tactic, those strategies that he had? Uh, and Davis Love was somebody who had listened to Paul Azinger. Uh, what he did in Medina, there were a lot of similar things. There was, you know, the pods were there and all that kind of stuff. It just so happened that there was this flukish miracle on Sunday where Europe comes back and wins. And then Ted Bishop comes in and, you know, <laughs> riding his horse and <laughs> waving his hat and basically saying, you know, these guys, these guys are soft and they need somebody to whip them into shape. And, and we have to endure that whole you know, load of bullshit with him and Tom Watson, where they think the pods are nonsense. The players are just soft. They need somebody who's strong and, and all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, that was a, a nightmare, uh, completely detached from reality, those guys. So then after that happens, though, that kind of then opens the door, gives the U.S. permission to say, OK, what has worked in the past? What can we implement? And then how can we implement it in such a way that we learn every time we win, that we learn every time we lose? That's called institutional memory. And so Again, a lot of it is stuff that Azinger laid out, the pods, but it can go all the way down to these really granular details about, okay, when do we want to have our team meetings? What's going to be the most convenient? Uh, you know, how do we, how many motivational speeches should we have? What do our players like? You know, like what kind of food should there be? On and on. How are we going to do the course? How are we going to do the pairings? Who can we get to be our stats guys that can help us, you know, give an advantage when we're at home? On and on and on. And the important thing is once they opted to do that, then it was sort of inevitable that they would have success because they were committed to learning the truth about how this thing runs. And then just another example of what they do, there really isn't much difference anymore between the President's Cup team and the Ryder Cup team. It's the same series of captains, the same series of people they're grooming as assistant and vice captains to become captains. And they get to learn from both things now. And it's this sort of like this weird like biofeedback ecosystem or something where uh, they just keep getting better and better. And, you know, I, I was somewhat skeptical of Stricker going into this past Ryder Cup, I think because in hindsight, it's, it's, it's a compliment that he kept things so close to the chest from a media perspective as far as all the stat stuff that was going on, all of the, the things that he placed importance on. I, I, I think I'm just maybe uh, speaking of institutional energy or whatever you want to call it from the past. I am uh, just prone to thinking that they're gonna do, they're gonna make huge mistakes. That it's a buddy system, and that Phil is being considered for this team, and that Kevin Kisner and Kevin Na are playing really good down the stretch, and they're being considered for the team. Where behind the, you know, behind the scenes, and Berger kind of alludes to this at the Tour Championship and says like. Guys, the team's pretty much set. Like we don't we don't need this crazy, you know, change of plan at the end. Like we have a plan. Like if we have six captains picks, like there's a reason for that. Like we want to be able to take control of this team. And again, you you kind of spell all this out, the specifics of what the task force is is responsible for. 
being, and again, it all seems obvious, but like a captaincy succession plan. Mm -hmm. So we don't have these little two-year phases where Ted Bishop can come in and say, you know, and I do want to talk some Tom Watson in there, but so the Tom Watson situation doesn't happen, which I don't think is Watson's fault. I think it's Ted Bishop's fault, but current captains previously uh, having been served as vice captains, a, you know, a recent captain head captain is now serving as a vice captain, which the role at Furyk played this past year, mm -hmm. embracing statistics, fostering chemistry through small pod groups, reducing stress on players as much as possible, choosing players whose game fits the course, invest the players in the process of forming the team. Like all that makes so much sense, but as little as eight years ago, like practically none of that was in place. Is that fair to say? Totally fair to say. One of my favorite like little anecdotes to, to show how far the U S was behind is that, uh, you know, Jacqueline talks about in 85 when he has control of the Belfry, slowing the greens down because the Americans were used to playing on faster greens and then, you know, lifting the rough up all the stuff that we see today uh, controlling the course, right? And so Azinger in his book, and then when I talked to him, he told Kerry Haig at the PGA of America at Valhalla, I want to, you know, I want to manipulate this course to give us as best an advantage as we can. And Kerry Haig was like, wow, no American captain has ever asked to do that before. You're like, you're like, I'm sorry, Tony Jacklin did that 23 years ago and nobody caught on. I mean, you could hear people like Americans saying at the time, Wow, they really manipulated the core. They really changed the course. It really made it hard for us. How does nobody catch on to that, right? But yeah, it does. I mean, you might say that the Americans were just like too good, right? They were so used to being better than the Europeans that every single Ryder Cup almost, they came in with a better team on paper that to deign to strategize, to deign to like have to like, you know, really get into the books and figure out how to beat these guys is almost like beneath them until things get so bad that then they begin to to look at it. And luckily you have the right guys in place. A quick break to check in with our friends at Roback. I was absolutely stoked to see a fresh box on the front porch of the Kill House, ripped it open, found a bunch of polos, performance Q-zips, performance hoodies from Roback. We have had a great experiencing with them, and after wearing them for a while, we can confidently say it's one of the best fits we've ever seen. First, their performance polos fit so much better than your typical boxy polos. Their four-way stretch is next level. The material super soft while staying wrinkle-free. The founders went through over 20 iterations of the collar alone to ensure it keeps its shape but doesn't get in the way of your golf swing. Second, the performance Q-zips are a game-changer. They're soft. You'll be hitting darts in these things all day long. They are the definition of versatile and perfect for a spring morning on the course. And lastly, Rogue performance hoodies are the stretchiest softest hoodies in golf they may even be the softest most comfortable performance hoodie on the entire market they are popping up everywhere all over the nfl all over college football i saw them on the golf course in my qualifier uh this past monday roback has been gaining traction big time so next time you see someone rocking the roback dog logo give them a subtle nod you know they get it you can use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's Roback, R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off all polos, Q-zips, and hoodies, and tees with code NLU. They just dropped new hoodies and Q-zips. Perfect for the spring. Go check them out and start 2022 off with some Roback. Let's get back to Shane Ryan. Help me refresh my memory on this one. I don't think it's in the book, but I feel like I've learned this, this quote from you at some point, but... Um, and I don't remember which captain or which, you know, it, it, I believe it was something on the U.S. side, but there was a, it talks about who should be the next captain, blah, blah, blah. And someone involved in the process says something along the lines of, well, how important is winning the cup? Is this ringing a bell at any point? That's interesting. Not really. No, I would. I, I, <laughs> sounds I'm very not, good, though. I'm <laughs> not relaying this story very well at all. But to me, it always seemed like. You know, just rotating the captain willy-nilly every couple of years is like not the best strategy for winning, but like kind of both sides 
you know, maybe did it a certain way and it seemed like it's a bit ceremonious, right? You know, yeah. in terms of you deserve to be captain, you want a major, blah, blah, blah. You're going to do this yet. It didn't really add up if you were trying to win it. Like it, it, ideally you would have like a Jerry Colangelo USA basketball model of like, hey, you're going to run this program and, you know, the coaches may cycle, blah, blah, blah. But like somebody's going to be dedicated to this full time rather than just rotating former players in. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't I don't have anywhere I don't really have anywhere I was going with that other than I think there was at a time someone along the lines asked the question like, well, again, how important is winning to it? And uh, it feels like now winning it, it this thing, it, it sounds obvious. It sounds crazy. Like, of course, it's always been yeah. important. But yeah. now it's like, no, 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 we're taking this very seriously. And this is about winning it. It's right. And it, but it took somebody making the first leap into, you know, the tactical side of things like with Jacqueline and Nicholas even just like front loading that Sunday lineup and Nicholas being shocked. Right. It took that. Yeah. (laughs) It took that happening uh, before any of this could change. Like it could have just gone on being ceremonial forever, except it couldn't have, right. Because the Ryder cup wouldn't exist anymore. We we wouldn't still be playing it because it would be too boring, but yeah, Europe was in a position where they needed to do it. Europe needed to do this in order to compete. The U S never did. And then finally over decades, the U S realized, Oh crap, we need to do this. And they did it too. I mean, that is like, that's a very basic way to reduce the history of the Ryder Cup. One side needed to do it. And then the other side did. And eventually they both did. Anyway, you know, to your point about Stricker, I had a similar thing. And I think it was still, I was stuck in some old ideas with Stricker. Particularly, I was like, he's not very charismatic. Yes. Uh, And that was something that struck me. But then, you know, the truth is, and what Stricker knew these guys don't need a charismatic figure. These Americans don't need it. They don't need to be pumped up. We get confused because every time Europe releases these motivational videos, and some of them are some of them are pretty cool, and some of them seem cheesy to me. But even the cheesy ones, like a lot of people like, and it's all the old captains going, "You are European," or you know, like in a row, it's like Sam Torrance, same guys all the time. Uh, They're getting more and more dramatic too as the years go on. Run out, but. But it works for them. It works for those players. And they need that and they like it. And it means it's meaningful to them. Whereas like you get guys like Justin Thomas or Spieth or like Scotty Scheffler they're I think they're more prone to scoff at it. And I don't know why this is the case. I don't know what makes them different, but it's important to realize, you know, that you need American solutions to the problem. Right. And I think for a long time, very, very tempting to have European solutions to the problem, but that doesn't work. But Stricker knew, uh, you know, we don't need motivational speeches. We don't need to have these videos. In fact, the less the better, because he hated them when he was playing. And so that's like something that he was good at. And it didn't matter that he really couldn't give a speech without, you know, crying or whatever. (laughs) And he couldn't. And so I I think he's smarter than people gave him credit for, certainly than I gave him credit for. I was one of the people who fell into the Kisner trap this time that you were talking about, where I was like, come on, Kisner's so good at the Ryder Cup. We need a panic move. We need to put somebody like that there. But it's like, no, he was so calm about it. Like Stricker was like, look, it's fine that Kevin Kisner is playing well, but I know people like Scotty Scheffler are going to be much better for, of course, like whistling straights. That's why I'm not the leader. And he is. I mean, that was like a smart move. Uh, And every step of the way, he kind of had his finger on the pulse that way. Well, and it's, it's another thing too, that like a traditional way of thinking of playing better is, you know, winning it. Kevin Kisner won a tournament, right? So Mm -hmm. that means he's playing better, right? Well, the next week, I think he was DFL or close to DFL at the next playoff weeks. You you can't just pick the top 
no. the top result and say that's the guy we're going to get at the Ryder Cup. you got to look at the, the totality of how they perform, how it fits in with the team model, which I have no issues with how Kisner would fit into that, but how you know their games translate onto that golf course. That's why I thought it was a total non-starter, and I've said a million times, like, 2018 this is a conversation that should have been had, and, and yeah. you, you kind of touch on the book in the book there as well as to – how things worked out so poorly for Jim Furyk in terms of how the captain's picks played out and how he, I thought his, I agreed hundred percent with the four picks he made at the time in hindsight, I think I would go differently on all but one of them. Yeah. Uh, even, yeah. even that one, like Finau was not a great, great course fit and he was the only one that had a winning record of that group. But it, it just goes to show also a big reflection upon reading this as well is I think this Ryder Cup goes differently if there, if a pandemic never happens. Uh, I think COVID was way worse for Europeans than it was for Americans, both travel-wise, family-wise, the fans not being there, a, a whole taxing year full of travel restrictions and different. It's just different. It was just different for them than the players that could just stay stateside for the entire year. And uh, the, the way games cycled, Jordan Spieth kind of finding his game in 21 and the way the team's kind of changed over from 2020 to 2021 has is like one of the only things that's like throwing a little cold water on the biggest beatdown uh in mo in modern Ryder Cup history for me. Yeah, you know, and it's funny like Patrick Harrington was I think he was like a decent captain. The players really liked him. I think he made, you know, he goofed some things up, but he really expected more Europeans to be there. And I think he was shocked by just the fact of and he shouldn't have been probably, but how difficult it was to get any fans in. And that's like such an advantage. I mean, just, even just to have a few Europeans there would have made a, a big difference for them. I don't think big enough difference to win. Look, the other thing about it is, and this goes just into, you know, the difference in the captains. One thing that stats have showed us is that captains picks perform better than people who are, who make the team who qualify at the bottom end, right? So let's say you have four captains picks. They're going to probably be better judged over history than the guys who qualify six through eight on the bottom of the list. Steve Stricker knew that. And when the pandemic hit, he's smart enough. He used that to go from four captain's picks to six. And when the pandemic was over and they said, okay, we've got another year. Well, not over, but you know what I mean? When, uh, when we have another year to play up to the 2021 Ryder cup, he kept the six captain's picks. He didn't go backward despite huge pressure from used golf facts on Twitter. <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, Patrick Harrington, uh, went down from four to three captain's picks. And his kind of thing was like, well, you know, uh, it, people who are captain's picks feel a lot of pressure uh, because they didn't make the team automatically. And simply not the case if you look at the numbers. But that pandemic worked against him in the sense that it gave Stricker an excuse to do what he would have done. If there was no pandemic, he would have only had four captain's picks. Stricker, or sorry, Scheffler wouldn't probably be on the team. A lot of things would have been different, but yeah, even the accidental things of COVID ended up favoring the Americans. And it just, these things, I, you know, it becomes more and more clear to me how much it comes down to depth. And, you know, we, a, a great example of this on the other side was Europe was deeper than the U S in 2014. It was just, and Paul McGinley had the luxury of taking Graham McDowell, one of his best players and saying, Hey, you're going to babysit Victor Dubuisson in foursomes. <laughs> And but what that what that means is you're going to be super fresh for singles. You're going to go out spank and blah blah blah. That, that's a luxury mm -hmm. that is was not afforded Padre, Padraig Harrington, and it was a luxury that that Steve Stricker had, you know, in spades this go around. Where Scotty Scheffler, you're going to sit, you're going to sit foursomes, you're going to play four ball with Bryce, and you're, you're going to do that, and then you're going to be fresh for singles. And he goes out and smokes John Rahm, and yeah. I just think like 
you know, depth can, you know, these things can change by the next go around. But if I'm Europe, the thing I'm concerned the most about is a a core of U.S. players that there's going to be some cycles in and out I, this year. I mean, who knows what happens with Bryson, Finau, Harris English, even Berger um, this year. But like they have a core of six or seven guys and just a whole slew full of Sam Burns's and who knows, Cameron Young's, Max Homa's that are ready to to play the depth role. And uh, I'm just, I don't know how you think about it, but I'm just not seeing that depth on the European side. Yeah, not at all. I think the biggest way you can tell is when you get optimistic European people and they're talking about like the Hoy guards and they're throwing names at you. And I'm sure they're all good players, but right. it's so speculative that any of them are going to ever be good, period, much less like in two years for Italy. And so you're like, oh boy, if that's your best hope, like you're in trouble. <laughs> You know, you got Hovland, Rory, Rom, you know, like maybe Fleetwood, like Fitzpatrick doesn't seem like he's that good in Ryder Cups yet. Yeah. And then then it's just kind of like once once your old guard is gone, which most of them you figure would be by Italy, it's just big question marks everywhere. And like you said, the U.S. is just spoiled for it. And then, you you know, you hear someone like Max Homa yesterday talking about how like the Ryder Cup and the, or he even said the President's Cup, the President's Cup is like this huge goal for him. These guys really care. And just like Scheffler, they're going to be happy to play whatever role they're told to play. They're not going to like be divas about having to play three out of the four sessions. If they get to play two alternate shots and then go and try to like poach a singles point, they're going to love that. And yeah, luxury is the right word for it. It's just, it's just a really, really good situation. It felt like, especially it kind of really clicked for me too. reading the book, thinking about how significant in hindsight, the Scheffler pick was, it feels like an enormous uh, I, I don't think I'm overstating when I say it feels very transformative in terms of thinking back to Tom Watson and a text message from Webb Simpson <laughs> ultimately deciding, you know, that he gets his way onto the team versus a rookie, a strokes gain stalwart who hadn't yet won on the PGA Tour, quiet personality, getting that call to get that 12th that 12th spot instead of leaning on some, a veteran of some kind or somebody that just really wanted to be on the team. Mm -hmm. And that's ignoring what has happened with Scotty Scheffler's career since that moment, which has been absolutely insane. But like yeah. having that level of talent as the 12th guy on the team is, is what's got me way overconfident. Listen, was I way overconfident after 2016? Of course that didn't go yeah. great in France, but I'm wondering if you see it differently this time around, as we look forward into Rome. I, I see it differently. I see it or the same as you, I guess. I, yeah. I, I see it differently from Paris. I think, yeah, the Sheffield thing was a great example. That makes me think like, I wonder if Bill Haas would be a multi-time major winner now. <laughs> if only Watson had picked him for the team. No, but yeah, so you look at Italy and it's, it's the ultimate hard thing to do to pick America to win in Europe when they haven't done it in 30 years. But this seems like the time. It seems like the time it's going to happen. They've got a system guy as captain in Zach Johnson. You know he's going to be like a solid hand of the till, right? He's not going to screw anything up. He's going to bring everything they've learned. They're going to have, you know, Stricker as an assistant. They'll have Davis Love there, I'm sure. And you're just spoiled for depth. And I just can't get over that I think Paris was fundamentally one of the most unlucky Ryder Cups for Furyk. In terms of the timing, which is not going to be the case anymore, they had to come over the next week. We talked about the captain's picks. Tiger was dead tired. Phil and Bryson were awful for the course, as it happened. Uh, things just went wrong from the beginning in a really strange way that I don't think was definitely not Furyk's fault, and I also don't think is repeatable. So 
if we look at Hazeltine and Whistling Straits and how well the U.S. did then, and we think of Paris as maybe an anomaly, and now I, I know I get I'm picking and choosing things that fit my narrative, yeah. <laughs> the narrative being that they're going to win in Italy, but I, I think there is, like, <laughs> I again, it's, it's going to sound hollow until it actually happens, but I personally believe they're going to win in Italy. The only thing that gives me hesitation is quite literally like, well, gosh, we've been favored so many times before and gone over to Europe and shat the bed. But like, I think again, in your book, you too, you do such a, a, a great job of let's like, why was that? Why did this happen? Like, what are some of the specifics of how this happened? And one of the things you talk about that honestly this is the best, uh, the best light I've seen shine on it. I, and as a huge stats nerd myself, I don't think I, you know, I say that I probably don't know 1% of what goes into how they do their modeling, but it seemed like, it was as convincing as anything on Stricker's process and the U.S. team's process in general, how much their statistical process has evolved. When did that transition or decision on their end happen to say, like, we are way underperforming on the statistical front or on the analysis front? This needs to change now. In your mind, when did that happen? 20, they were with a task force. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it was McGinley was using stats in 2014. But this is one where they weren't that far behind Europe. Uh, Darren Clark was the first one to use their their group, which is called the 21st group, which comes from, you know, English Premier League soccer. They they hired them in 2016 uh, at Hazeltine to be part of their staff. By then, um, Scouts Consulting, which is the American group uh, run by Jason Aquino, who, by the way, if you ever get a chance to talk to him, really, really not. This is someone who, as a kid, would would be taping Ryder Cup press conferences and watching him so much that the tape would disappear. Like really one of the most Ryder Cup obsessive people, I think probably in the world. But you know, he became a, as you read, he became like a military uh, analyst and eventually went out on his own and got hired by these guys to do their stats for them. And not just stats, but all kinds of analysis and, and consulting work. And yeah, so they that started a little bit at Hazeltine. And they were really good at Hazeltine and, and Davis Love was really impressed with them. So they had a bigger role in Paris at the same time that the 21st group did a really, really good job in Paris, figuring out how to set the course up, the pairings to make like Molinari Fleetwood. That was them, right? That, that wouldn't have occurred to anyone that they were the ones who were like, green means go. This is going to be a really good pair. Uh, and then they had the biggest role yet, scouts consulting for the Americans at Whistling Straits to the point that they're basically sitting in the, in the captain's meetings with all the captains. So yeah, that's, that's a task force thing. People give actually Phil Mickelson again credit for that. He as one of the people who was like, we need to figure out the analytics part of this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, recent but a really really big addition, especially with all that Europe has. You needed that. You needed a counterbalance to that. Yeah. At the same time, it seems like they are they're not saying this is what the computer's spitting out. This is what we're going to do, right? Dustin Johnson and Colin Morikawa was not <laughs> jumping off the page at them statistically, but they said, you know, kind of. We, we know we're bucking the trend here, but with good reason, blah, blah, blah. And they pressed the right buttons in, in this past year. I mean, that's, it's, uh, I don't know. It, it, it I have more and more, fa it, it's not like, it's, it's not like this book is filled with just, you know, reckless or, or relentless hype. It, it just is like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it's like specifics yeah. to the process. Right. And, and I, and I kind of want to backtrack a little bit too, of like what I, what I mentioned earlier saying. I the only thing that has me that I fear about when it comes to Rome is just like the uncertainty of like we haven't done this in forever and two like it just has happened way too many times where I get that gut feel it's like oh when they get down 5-3 it's like oh my god it happened again I didn't see it coming and it happened again what you you kind of take them step by step and I'm, I'm wondering what you want to lead with here in terms of you go you, you throw out six or seven theories as to why the European dominance has been so strong 
uh, over so many years and kind of pick them apart one by one. What, 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 what really jumps out to you? In terms of like the false ones, there's a lot there. And there's some I've been tempted, uh, I've been tempted by, uh, like the idea that, you know, Europe is a more socialistic culture. So they're stronger. <laughs> and I, that to me was like, you know, as someone with like a political mind, it was like, oh, yeah, that's really, really persuade, you know, it's really seductive kind of line of reasoning. But then you're like, well, you know, America does just fine in basketball, or, you know, or, some, or, you know, whatever the case is, like, there's other team sports where we win. I don't think we're worse teammates or anything like that. Uh, there's things, you know, the, the original thing, which actually I think most people have discredited by now, and nobody really says it is, hey, we just needed to play better. That's like the, the rudimentary sort of like very simple minded thing to say, hey, it's just a small sample size, we needed to play better. Europeans play better under pressure. That's obviously not true. More Americans win majors, right? So you go on and on. And I think what it comes down to is just basically, you know, they they found the strategy faster than the Americans did. And if you look at it from a really detached perspective, again, you can just say it's, it's, it's a case of historical necessity. They had to find the strategy to win and America didn't because America was already winning based on their talent advantage. It would just be like a, some kind of military thing, right? Where you're like, if you were the like the stronger military, you had more people and better weapons, you would be more likely to be out strategized in the beginning because you're used to winning. Europe has had better leadership, I think, is the last theory that I said there, theory seven. And to me, that's the decisive factor. That's been it. And that's not true anymore. There's one point, I'll spoil a dramatic line in the book, but basically, I think you and I, and probably a lot of other people, while Europe was winning, were thinking, what if you took their tactics? What if you took their leadership and put it on the American team? Like, what if you added like the really great leadership with the superior talent? What would happen? And the answer is, you know, what happened at Whistling Straits, that 19-9 blowout. And that's, I think, why there's room for hope. I will, I will say this, like to add to your hesitation, it's really hard, I think, for golfers to play on with a hostile crowd. I, I just think that is like a fundamental truth. They're not used to doing it. It's hard for anybody in any sport, maybe a little harder. And that that kind of thing is like, we talk about what will give us pause. That for me is one of them where it's like, they still got to go in there with like a bunch of screaming, drunken, singing Europeans in their face for three days and win. Maybe that's, maybe that's something to, to kind of consider too. Yeah. I mean, it's granted that, you know, they only have this thing every two years and there's been two one year delays within that, but there's only been two away teams that have won going all the way back to Valderrama. And that's, you know, that's at uh, Oakland Hills in 04, and that's at Medina in 2012. And the home teams have won every, one, every other one since then. If I'm remembering right, I'm, 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 I don't think I'm missing one in there. No, because Valderrama was the Europeans, then Brookline, and then, uh, yeah, oh, 02 and 06 in Europe, 04 in Oakland Hills obviously was the exception. And, yeah, then since, uh, since Valhalla, Medina's been the only exception. And it seems to be stretching out more and more. I mean, the clo- there was close ones in 2010 and in 2012. And then since then, it's just been home teams just kind of dominating. And um, I am, you know, one thing that kind of looking back at it too and reading about the picks and how they've come together, it really does sound like Patrick Reed is out from all future teams barring an automatic qualification. And I, I still can't believe that Tiger took him at Royal Melbourne after what happened in Paris, but it seems like they're not even being that secretive about the fact that he does not fit in with this team anymore. Yeah. And, and that's the thing with Tiger is it's like the way to look at it is okay. Well, he's getting another chance after Paris. It did to me too. It seemed like Paris was going to be the end of the story. What happens when you give him another chance? He just embarrasses you twice, really. The first time with the Bahamas stuff and then with his caddy getting in a fist fight with a, with a fan in Australia. I don't know if I said this in the book or not, but at one point, 
to me, like it was going to be so interesting to see if Stricker would give him a pick. And I, I thought not, but then when he gets sick, it kind of takes the drama away. Right. Because it's like, he's got a built-in excuse if he didn't want to, or if he was wishy-washy. So you can't look at him not taking read and say anything decisive about it, which is a shame because I wanted it. I wanted it to come to a head and feel like, is this guy on the outs or not? But anyway, I texted Stricker just for the heck of it very late in the writing process and said, you know, and I, you know, I, I spoke with Stricker a handful of times. I don't want to give a wrong impression that he and I were like buddies or anything. So for me to text him was kind of like taking a leap. And I just said, you know, would you have taken Reed if he had been healthy? And he wrote back, I'd rather not answer that question with a winking emoji. <laughs> so like, yeah, I think there, are, I think that's a clear answer, isn't it? Or it, it kind of depends how you interpret it, but I don't think he's going to be picked. I think they learned their lesson in Australia and Stricker was right there to see it. And it's just bad news. I think it goes back to, we listed out the seven or eight things that the task force is, you know, and the last one among that was, you know, the team be also feeling responsible for who fills out the team. And yeah. there can't be one single guy. I mean, Ty, I guess I know Tiger and P have a, have a weird relationship in that regard. And that would have been, you know, that, that was maybe two things just aligned too perfectly for Reed to, uh, you know, to get selected by Captain Tiger in the 2019 President's Cup. But I don't think there's another guy in that locker room that's going to swear off on that. And, and from from sources I have that are close to that team as well, that's the sense I get as well. Yeah, and you would know you would have far closer sources than I would. So, yeah, if they're saying that, I think that's as close as you're going to get to, to affirmation of that. But he just, <laughs> he's a strange guy. And I, I think, yeah, I think they, I think they understand it's pretty easy to have good chemistry on these teams. Most of the guys you're going to want are going to fall in line. Even having Bryson there wasn't that bad, but there is one person where if he doesn't win every single match, he's just not worth it. And in Paris and Australia, he didn't win his Paris matches. So what are you taking him for anymore? Well, of course, we have, of course, Tiger apologized to P for how bad he played, even though Reed shot about 84 that day. But that's what's uh, uh, what Reed alleges that you know, Tiger apologized. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, right. I'm sure he came up and unbended <laughs> me. Yeah. How will history look back on the press conference after the 2014 Ryder Cup? Has that changed at all over the last eight years? Yeah, I just think, you know, Phil Mickelson will always be this respected figure uh, for it and nothing will ever tarnish his legacy. <laughs> no, viewing you know, just viewing just what happened there, though, ignoring what has happened sure, with no, Phil no. since and what's happened with the Ryder Cup. Has that changed in your mind? In terms of how it was perceived at the time? Yeah, I just wonder if, you know, uh, yeah. how you perceived it at the time and it, and how people in general, I know you can't speak for everyone, but... No, no, yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I think at the time from my memory, it was a pretty like stark debate. I think people were really torn on whether this was something that was necessary uh, or if it was just an insult to a legend of the game. And I think it was probably both, but I do think it was necessary. Uh, and I think, yeah, I don't think, I think as America gets better in the task force, you know, when that was originally launched, it was a punchline because it's just kind of a funny self-important name task force. But as that becomes, you know, through the historical rearview mirror, we see what it accomplished and what it's doing. I think people will more and more see 2014, you know, the press conference as something maybe that had to happen and maybe was inevitable. Uh, I don't think it's going to become worse uh, with hindsight would be my guess. Yeah. I think as, as time goes on and if you read it really closely, it, it, it is, it does dig at Tom, but again, I still maintain that it was not Tom's fault. It is Tom was brought in to do, to be 
exactly what he was. It was a mistake to put him in that spot. And that is what Phil is calling out. And, you know, even even Tom's response to it, like he d- sees differently. I think we, you know, it's not about pods. It's about 12 players. Like, dude, you're totally missing the point. Like you've totally and completely missed the point. And you are part of an era that was just different talent-wise and that could, could get by on all this stuff. And this this part of the game has passed you by and you're not connected with these players. You should not be in charge. And like that's not your fault, but this is this cannot happen again. And I, I found it interesting, too. You, you include a, a tweet from Lee Westwood about, you know, the Europeans were piling on when the task force was formed. And since the task force has been formed, the U.S. is 2-1. and one. Granted, they've had two home ones. But... It's going to look really – all of a sudden, if, they, if they're able to flip Rome and Beth Page looking really, 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 really good for the U.S. as of right now, it's going to be – and if Lee Westwood's off in the Saudi tour and, and you know, instead and not sticking around for, for what's, what is looks like is on the horizon, uh, it's going to be a little interesting footnote in history. I, and I'm all for remembering that Lee Westwood quote because I, I did a tweet that was – uh, about Robert McIntyre when he was like making waves last year at the match play where I was like, you know, say what you want about Robert McIntyre. I, I love when you, I love when you do these. I think it's great to have a villain in the game. <laughs> and Lee Westwood quote tweeted me and is like, what is this clown saying? And went back and forth with me. And all these like British people were screaming and yelling about me for calling Robert McIntyre a villain. And in the middle of that, I was like, Lee, how about a one-on-one interview? I'm writing, I'm writing a book about the Ryder cup. And he's like, not bloody likely or whatever. <laughs> And I was like, I was just like, oh man, what a humorless, like, anyway, the fact that he's going to the Saudis, like, you know, I, like confirms, like, he's a bad person for attacking me on Twitter. No, not really. <laughs> but, but rest assured, I will remember his task force tweet and throw it back at his face if it becomes more and more comic with time. I think uh, the, the, you've done this, you've done that tweet a couple of times now, or yeah, it's my favorite when you do it. And I think at one point I replied like, hey. 2015 Twitter would have absolutely loved this one because it was <laughs> it was a fun website back then and you could make jokes and people got it and now everything is just way 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 too self serious but and, and I I don't mean this to, to pile on Tom Watson but uh, you know and maybe I just need to separate out this next question from it but what makes a bad captain and I say that through the lens of like holy shit listening to your 2014 episode I honestly kind of forgot how bad he was as a captain but I hate I hate saying this guy lost he's a bad captain not a lot of people are saying that about Padre Harrington but like there are things uh, you know a bad captain does what are those things yeah, those things are, first of all, if you have a system in place that's been successful, deviating from that system makes mm-hmm. you a bad captain. Uh, we saw that Nick Faldo is probably the most famous example of somebody who was riding a tide of unbelievable European success. They had just won by nine points two times in a row, and he had his own thing going, uh, and it was a, a nightmare because he was too arrogant. So, What I did he do specifically, though, uh, for those that aren't as familiar yeah, with, yeah. with Sure, sure. So, you know, it was essentially just not preparing, being too arrogant to prepare. That The template that we understand from the Europeans is all the same stuff we said about the Americans that they've done, but basically having these really attentive captains who for two years are preparing, getting to know their people, studying them. Bernard Langer was a great example of somebody who was like in constant communication throughout his year and a half before the Ryder Cup, sending out surveys to people to know who they want to play with, um, you know, being really attentive about, you know, if you're at home, which Faldo wasn't, you know, figuring out how to how to make your course the right way, paying attention to captain's picks, and then bonding with people, trying to bond with them over time. Faldo did none of this. Faldo basically rolled into Kentucky at the last minute and thought he might come and win because the U.S. had a weak team. So that's one thing you can do is deviate from a, uh, a good system. 
if you don't have a good system, which we've seen with Americans in the past, you're already up against you're already up against the eight ball a little bit. But not having a coherent plan, really, and backup plans like Azinger was somebody who came at a really bad time for the U.S. Ryder Cup and didn't have a particularly strong team. However, he had this really really solid plan that he had envisioned for a long time because he thought about the Ryder Cup nonstop. He implemented it. He had the charisma and the leadership abilities to make this work. He got the team invested. So having a plan is important, even if it turns out not to be enough to win. And the other thing a bad captain can do beyond being arrogant and not having a plan is to not make any effort to understand his players. And I think Watson, you would, you would file him under that of somebody who just never attempted to understand what the new generation was like and why maybe they wouldn't respond to the old stern ways or whatever. Uh, so those are just a couple of things. Um, and then you could get down into the granular stuff of ignoring like Powery pa- Carrington. Nobody's saying he's a bad captain. However, at this point in the time in the Ryder cup, you have to know that captain's picks are good and having more captain's picks is better. You have to know what balls your players are going to play. You can't be surprised by that. The week of that two guys can't play together. You should put your guys that you're going to play in the Ryder Cup, you should have them practice at Whistling Straits in the week leading up and not scramble them around and then tell people it's because, oh, I wanted to preserve some mystery for the day of the event. That was bizarre. It's so insane. insane. (laughs) Uh, You can't do that. Like, And so I'm not saying he was a bad captain. All those people love him. I don't think any of this would have changed the outcome at Whistling Straits, but those are some examples of you got to be smarter than that. It's not rocket science. That's where I, I still go back to with with Harrington. When you're that outgunned, you almost you're choosing between a bunch of bad options, and it can look even more silly when you don't have a bunch of things you can toggle around. And and uh, he did not have the luxuries that that Stricker had. But uh, it's weird you said that unprepared and 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 arrogant about that about Faldo. That I I don't get that at all from watching him on television for the past fifteen to twenty years at all. I don't. That's that's not all how I describe his approach to that. But very <laughs> controversial to call Nick Faldo arrogant. There's <laughs> going to take a lot of flack from the Faldites on Twitter. Which is and also just looking at that 08 roster on the U.S. side, it's almost like you know Zinger's approach kind of only could have worked if they were if the US was in as dire of a straits as they were and as in terms of getting signed off on right You're coming off losing three rider cups but two by the worst margin ever and you know no tiger on that team and having it's a it's kind of a joke of a roster if you look back at it like he I don't know if he could have gotten away with uh kind of that model um if if that had if they weren't you know in that dire of straits and there's a lot of parallels to Jacqueline where he had this meeting with the PJ of America saying like I want the, you know, the qualification system to be different. I only want it to be the year of the Ryder Cup. Uh, I want, you know, the power, I want more captain's picks. I want four instead of two. And these things that they say, you know, they buy into it. They're like, yeah, of course. And like you said, can't happen probably if they're winning the last three or something like that. But things were so bad that they weren't. I think it just clicked for me. The awkward question I asked earlier about who said, "Do how badly do you want to win? I think that Zinger said that on, on our podcast, actually, when he was talking to oh. the PGA of America folks about putting that strategy together or what kind of captain you wanted. That uh, It just now... I might not be remembering that right, but I think that just clicked for me. It definitely sounds like him. Yeah. It sounds like something like he's unlike Stricker. He's like a really charismatic kind of guy who can like talk to people that way. So I can definitely see him doing that. The the one quick funny thing about uh, that team too is as weird and bad as the roster looked on paper, then when he let the pods make their own captain's picks, it worked even worse. <laughs> like the captains think they think were not the logical ones to bolster the team. I love like, uh, I, I think it was in uh, in his book, Cracking the Code, where he was like, Johnny Miller went on TV and said he wouldn't have picked any of those guys. 
<laughs> but it worked, right? And it's not, it's it, the Ryder Cup's a whole different beast. And it was a really good plan and it worked. Steve Stricker, Hunter Mahan, JB Holmes, and Chad Campbell. Stricker, Mahan, and Holmes were all rookies. Chad Campbell had a one, three, and two record going into it. Um, yep. But then Hunter Mahan comes out. He plays five matches, goes 2 0 and 3. Stricker goes 0 2 and 1. Chad Campbell goes 2 and 1. And JB Holmes goes 2 0 and 1. So they were pretty much the difference makers. Just because, and I know he's been getting hammered on this, but just, just for sport. Can we revisit some of the, uh, the some of the stuff that went down at the 2014 Ryder Cup that was quite uh, the comedy of errors that was the captaincy yeah. of Watson? Because DJ DJ texted me as soon as he listened to the 2014 episode. He's like, "You got to listen to this. Watson's even worse than we remember." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it's just one thing after another. I I don't know what your favorite is. Mine might be the Saturday night meeting. Yes, uh, that's good. Where- <laughs> where he's just like, he reads the room completely incorrectly. I, they're down 10, six at that point. And he starts thinking that the really smart, fun thing, to, funny or good thing to do is to go through the European singles lineup and just insult them. Like he's an insult comic just <laughs> going down the line, insulting them. And, the, and then they give him a, like this replica of a Ryder cup trophy that they've all signed. And he's basically like, I want the real thing boys. <laughs> like, And it's all, it's like such a, it's almost a tragic story because you can see what he's going for and it's just, it's just so misplaced in time. Uh, but yeah, that was a fun one. I don't know. I, you guys stink at foursomes. That's great. He, he starts, uh, starts with that one and then mangling the Reed Spieth pairing and, um, going with Ricky and Jimmy Walker uh, for their fourth straight match when they were obviously gassed and pairing up guys that hadn't been played together. I think did, did Furick and Hunter Mahan play alt shot or something together that week and they weren't supposed to, or Mahan hadn't prepared for that. I think there was a Kucher pairing too. That was just sort of out of left field. That wasn't what they were waiting for. Yeah. You know, and it's really funny with these things because that Spieth Reed decision in particular their afternoons were disasters, right? So they both mornings, they did pretty well on Friday and Saturday. Then I think it was three and a half to a half point each afternoon yep. that Europe won by. That's something where you're like, boy, I wonder what happens if the dominoes start to fall. If you have Spieth and Reed there, maybe some other guys are in different positions. Maybe the right group is left off. Like maybe they leave that first day with a lead, right? I mean, it's just, there's all this stuff where you go, that actually might've been bigger than we think. I actually think that about whistling straight sometimes. And I think I'm wrong about this, but I, I have that thought once in a while of if they hadn't screwed up the ball fiasco, if they hadn't had to at the last minute switch up all their alternate shots, they were down right away. And being down right away made them desperate and panicky and had to make these crazy lineup decisions that fed right into Stricker. What if they're 2-2 at the end of the first session? How, how different could it look? I don't know. Probably the answer is not very different. But anyway, yeah, that, that Spieth and Reed thing in particular, I would kill to know the alternate timeline what would happen if they played in that afternoon? Uh, Cause I don't think they were going to lose. I mean, those guys were so fired up and what a buzzkill, not just for them, but the entire team to tell them they're, they're going to sit. Yeah. And then Phil sits for the whole day on Saturday, kind of unexpectedly. And it just seemed like there was just, just no game plan, right? Just, you know, got punched in the mouth and just kind of threw everything else out the window. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating one to revisit. One one other thing I wanted to chat with you about was, you know, this concept, you mentioned it earlier about dispelling the notion of just playing better, right? Which I've, I've subscribed to for a long time. Like, Hey, like straight up, like the Americans are not playing good golf in this, right? It's not always the responsibility of the captain, you know, to magically press the right buttons for pairings, 
But there is there are responsibilities the captain can have to put his players in the best position to play their best golf. That sounds like a theory that you kind of subscribe to. And I think it kind of what, what you included in the book from what I said on the podcast from the Solheim Cup was a team environment that it comes from a place of team support versus a bunch of individuals that really want it very badly. They just want to do it in their own way. Seems to drag Americans down, uh, uh, you know, has in the past seemed to drag the Americans down the Ryder Cup side. And that's what I felt like I saw at the Solheim Cup. And the European support system seems to uh, give a rise to unheralded players or less heralded players. It, it, am I, do you think I'm onto something with that? Do you see that as well? Is that a theory you subscribe to? Definitely. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, I, th- I thought the way you put that in your podcast, I actually remember where I was when I was listening to it. I was driving to Whistling Straits for one of my researches uh, trips and listening to that. It was just like, bam, that's it. And you, you got to go right into the locker room and, and see this. I, I like the dancing thing. Yeah. You know, whereas like, if somebody wasn't out and dancing, somebody else from that European team would drag them in. There was nobody left behind. And that's the sort of collective atmosphere they have. Uh, and it does, it gives them a little bit of an advantage, I think. And in some cases, a big advantage. <laughs> I'm trying to get my brain back on track. The question was, you know, just this, this theory of like, you know, again, we've tried, we've had so many Ryder Cups where we walk away, like trying to solve why this American team better on paper, you know, doesn't play as well or doesn't succeed as well. I, I do not want to put that all at the feet of the captains. It's not like the captains just put made bad moves. I don't want to put it straight on the players. Like, Hey, you guys need to play better, but it does seem like there is, it's, it, it just, it took forever for it to click for me in terms of like having, you know, when you need to play your best golf and need to come through in a moment, the idea of, I'm going to go do this for my team versus like, holy crap. Like I'm feeling so much pressure on this. It, the, the, the reaction should be incredibly natural to both of those two things. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, there are a few things and we talked about American solutions for American problems, yes. right? So the pods I think were just a stroke of genius because how do you achieve that comfort and that, that team sort of feeling and that security to go out and play your best under pressure if you don't have guys who maybe are as naturally inclined as the Europeans to have this sort of kumbaya feeling, even if they, you know, hate each other in the rest of life, you know, you can still have Darren Clark and Colin Montgomery walking arm in arm down a fairway, things that you're not really going to see from guys who don't love each other with the Americans. And the answer was smaller groups that fit, you know, based on personality types and game types together. So that's like a really good solution. Another thing that the U S didn't do forever and Hal Sutton was really guilty of this was giving people time to know what's going to happen and so that they are ready and prepared when the thing happens. I think golfers are a very unique brand of sort of, you know, anal or, or they really want to know what they're going to do. They like a plan. They don't like surprises. And so like how Sutton, you know, can have this, like what he thinks is a stroke of genius playing Phil and tiger together in 04 and let them know like the day before. And so all of a sudden Phil has to run off and, and try to like acclimate to tiger's golf balls and everything. These things are bad (laughs) you know that is going to make people feel insecure and unprepared when the moment hits and that and europe had that for the longest time there's there's such good preparers and now the u.s has it too uh so yeah those are some of the things and i really do think it really comes largely down to preparation and knowing the personality of your team and and that again going back to stricker like knowing that you know the less we can ask these guys to do the better if we can if they can go hit and then go take a nap and then go work out like that's all they want to do right <laughs> they don't want to like have a dinner together they don't want to sign a million autographs and you know that, that's the psychological part that i think is really important yeah and you talked about that in there too as well as how stricker managed to navigate the the kepka 
not necessarily the Kepka Bryson minefield there, but the, honestly, the Kepka interview leading up into it kind of was. It sent, I mean, who knows if people outside the golf Twitter world actually cared about it, but it kind of sent golf Twitter into hysteria in terms of like just his line in there where he says, like, you know, sometimes it's like, I want my match. What, what else do you want me to do? And yeah. in line with what we had just seen at the Solheim Cup, it was like, dude, like, that's the whole thing right there. Like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. Like, yeah. dude, like, I'm not saying, like, make, if you go out and cheer on so and so that they're going to play better golf, but the idea that, like, Hey, I'm going to sell out for my team, get my point, and then I have other roles to fill on this team as well. Is what they have done so well on the other side. I think there's an enormous, enormous talent gap in this past year that may cover up some of those warts, but it seems like for the majority of this U.S. team, they seem to understand that. And it's like what you saw, and and what makes people, even some Americans, cheer for the Europeans is that it's a more romantic story about how you win on the European side. First of all, you're the underdog, which is you know nobody roots for like Goliath. Right. But the thing is, it's like how you come together. Like there's the moment you witness in the locker room, this almost like symbiosis, this European thing where it's passion and, and we have motivational videos and it's nice and we can overcome the giant. That's a great story saying, uh, you know, we're going to win by like letting the guys take naps and uh, they don't really, they don't really like to hang out in a group. So we're going to make the group smaller because that's kind of what they like. That's like, <laughs> it's not that fun a story. Right. I mean, and that's, and that's ultimately the thing of like, writing this book, it, I think it's interesting to tell one time of like, this is how they did it. And I think it's really brilliant and all that, but it's brilliant in the way that like the German soccer team would beat the like flamboyant Dutch team in the, in the world cup. Right. It's not the thing that's like the sexy story. It's the boring uh, clinical. This is how we take more talent and we implement a system that destroys you bit by bit. And, and that's, you know, and, and that's the reality of it. I mean, and that's what they had to do, but it's not the same thing. It's not fun. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm curious as to what the next chess moves are, right? Because it kind of, I, I, I equate this a little bit to just analytics in basketball, or really analytics movements in any sport, right? Where you know the Houston Rockets kind of changed the way shots were created and and chosen from, and they mm -hmm. had an advantage there for a while. Nobody needed to change until they changed, and then everybody ends up kind of shifting that way. And like you, could, like going back to the '90s, all these galas and and cookouts. And like the enormous kind of showcase that this event was when both sides were kind of doing it and doing things the same way, it didn't really matter that there weren't analytics movements. But once, once Europe, Europe starts doing this, like you have to counter or you are losing significant, significant ground. So what is the next chess move that either of these sides can, can play and listening to Harrington's quotes about, you know, everything we've done, they've copied us. So from Lee, from <laughs> yeah. Lee Westwood saying like, Oh, they made a task force to cut like, Oh, I'm, I'm scared or whatever his quote was to like two Ryder Cups later, I guess three Ryder Cups later being like, hey, they've copied everything. Like, what are we supposed to do? It's kind of jarring. It is. It's like a life comes at you fast. Yeah. Like yeah. Those, those two things set back to back. Yeah. Like, what is the next chess move? That's a great question. You do reach a point of saturation almost yeah. where you get like, I, I think I you probably read in the book and I, I may have told you, you know, talking with Davis Love, he at the end of uh, after the Ryder Cup, he was like, there's some things you need to do better you know, and, and me thinking like, what could that possibly be? And him talking about food and transportation and things like that. So yeah, I guess you can really get into the little details of like, how do we even smooth over these little things that make life easier for the players. But in terms of the big chess moves and the big strategic things, you're starting to get to a point where you kind of throw your hands up and go, you've figured out basically everything. And then you start to wonder the thing you talked about earlier, the home team having such an advantage if we do go a couple more Ryder Cups with that, I wonder at some point 
if a neutral party sets up the courses, if they stop letting the, the yeah. teams manipulate them, it would kind of be a shame, but also you, you do have to protect the product a little bit. Uh, if you keep getting, you know, 17 and a half to 15 or 11 and a half or whatever it is. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. Sending you out on this one. What, uh, what happens in, in Rome? I know you touched on it earlier, but you, you think this is, this is the one that, that gets flipped. It's going to be the most exciting Ryder cup we've I think we've seen in our lifetimes, because I think we're at that point where I think a lot of us probably thought Paris was that too, but I think now we really think at 15, 13 us, I think it's that kind of thing. I respect the Europeans that much that I see this team is better. The U S team is quite better. And I think Europe could be in real trouble in terms of who's on the roster in two years, but the home crowd is big. And they just, there's just a lot of pride and they're not going to give up so easy. So I, I think a narrow U.S. victory right now seems to me in the cards. I may have a different answer the week of Italy. The book is called The Cup They Couldn't Lose. Can you give us your, I, I think we, I think we've made a great advertisement for it in this podcast, but if you give us your final pitch as to why, what, anything we didn't cover here as to, as to why somebody might enjoy this book. Yeah, no, I think we've covered it all. Um, you don't need to buy the book anymore. No, <laughs> no, I think it's a really, you know, this. if you love the Ryder Cup and you love golf, I think there's a lot of uh, good stories in there uh, about the various personalities involved. And I think just from a historical angle, I think it's one of the best sports stories there is, the Ryder Cup. And I've always felt that way. The romance of each individual Ryder Cup somehow stays when you look at the romance of the longer arc of history. And I just think it's a great story and I hope I did a good job telling it. And that's my pitch. You know, if you like that and you're interested in what you heard here, I think you'll probably like the book. Tell me the Ryder cup run uh, podcast is going to continue on with, with future episodes. Absolutely. I'm going this week. I'm going to get 2008 out. Yes. I'm, almost, I'm almost done writing it exactly. and I'm going to keep it going. Love it. Love yeah. it. So, well, Shane, thanks so much for the time and, uh, and, and telling some stories and, and, and spoiling some stories from the book. I know the audience greatly appreciates it and, I greatly enjoyed it. So uh, thank you, and uh, we'll do it again soon, my friend. It was awesome. Thanks a lot, Chris. You bet. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. 